Stanford University. Thank you, Paul, and welcome, everyone. This is indeed a very important event in the history of Stanford Business School. I came to uh, Stanford in 1965, uh, just a year before Lee came, and I was in the dean's office as one of uh, two academic deans under R.J. Miller, and during the decade of the 1970s, Lee had a profound impact upon uh, the business school here at Stanford and many other things. With me, of course, is R.J. Miller, the fourth dean of the Graduate School of Business, and Chuck Horngren, uh, eminent and really highly respected accounting professor nationally. Um, Lee Bach, as I said, came to Stanford in 1966, two years, uh, having visited really Stanford two years before and having made a decision to come here. And as Paul indicated, he was founding dean of the Graduate School of Industrial Administration at Carnegie uh, Institute of Technology, it was known at that time, uh, really a giant in managerial education. And with us uh, this morning as well is Jim Marsh, who was on the faculty at the, uh, at the uh, uh, Graduate School of Industrial Administration at Carnegie. Retiring from Stanford in 1983, he had really a profound impact on the business school, um, as well as more broadly. And we hope to bring out uh, some of this in our discussion and uh, fill out a canvas, uh, <coughs> hopefully, of a picture of this very remarkable man. So I'd like to begin uh, with RJ. Um, Lee Bach chaired the search committee that uh, not only offered you the job, but he also actively recruited you for the job. So I'd like to ask you to start off and give your impressions, if you could, RJ. Thank you, Jim. Good morning, all. I want to make two points this morning. First, Lee Bach changed my life. And secondly, any success the business school may have enjoyed during the 10 years I was here could not have been accomplished without the contribution of Lee. I want to thank Paul for arranging this session this morning so it gives me an opportunity to expand on these two points. Let me also add, I'm very pleased that so many members of Lee's family are here today. You can hear firsthand from the people that knew your father well what a giant he really was. Let me start a little personal history. Growing up, I always thought I wanted to be a teacher. And at the time World War II came along, I was a graduate student at the University of California at Berkeley, had finished all the academic requirements, passed the exams, and was busy writing my doctoral dissertation when I got a penny postcard in the mail from my draft board congratulating <laughs> me that I'd been selected to serve in the Army uh, Air Forces. <clears throat> I went in as a private, got to officer candidate school, and by the time the war was over, was a planning officer in the Pentagon. A turning event, Henry Ford's picture appeared on Life magazine on October of 1946, just after the war was over. Henry Ford I was senile, his only son Edsel had died, and the Navy let Henry II out of the Navy so he could take over the family-controlled empire. It was in a real mess. During the war, they were even able to lose money on cost plus contracts, and that takes some real skill. <laughs> Almost out of cash and headed uh, for bankruptcy. Things were quite a bit different 23 years later when I left. We had a cozy little oligopoly going. GM set high prices, Chrysler and Ford followed, and the profits rolled in. The auto industry was the most profitable industry. 
the auto executives were the best paid in America. Remember at that time, there were no hedge funds, and banking was a dull and honest business. They hadn't yet dreamed up these exotic derivatives with enormous fees and outrageous salaries and bonuses that uh, contributed. So that was the, that's a couple of notes here. Um, we also paid our employees twice what the average pay in the U.S. was at that time and had very generous health and pension benefits, and that's one of the things that led to the problems here today. But there were some clouds on the horizon. In 1967, there were riots in the city of Detroit. Uh, Twelve full blocks of the city had burned up, and the National Guard was called in. And some of us business, business leaders said, we'll go down and clean this situation up. So we raised a few million dollars, created something called the Economic Development Committee of Detroit. I was the chairman. We marched in. Complete failure. We didn't know what to do. Uh, we weren't the only city. There was riots in Watts uh, in L.A. and Bedford-Stuyvesant in New York. And so President Johnson, at the time, called a meeting of people, both academic and uh, business, to see what should be done. So we all got together and decided we needed a new think tank. So we established the Urban Institute. I was the chairman the first five years. We had a budget of $8 million, and it's now going at $60 million, and I think the urban problems today are greater than they were when we set up the think tank. I know that they are worse uh, in Detroit. In 1964, Ralph Nader wrote a book called Unsafe at Any Speed. The auto industry, he pointed out, was neglecting the safety problems. So the presidents of the automobile companies were called to Washington to testify under Senator Ribicoff. Again, we blew it. Didn't know, understand the political process or what to do. The result was a legislation that the safety czar was appointed to regulate safety in the auto industry. A couple of years later, we did the same thing on clean air. We didn't know how to respond to that either. And so they uh, passed legislation and controlled the emissions from automobiles. All this time, I kept up my interest in, in the academic, higher education especially. We built our home in Ann Arbor, which was home of the University of Michigan. We set up a discussion group that included the president of the university, the dean of the business school, some other deans, one or two business people. And also, I went on the visiting committee of the Harvard Business School, also on the one that Lee Box set up, the GSIA at Carnegie Mellon. And I was the founding chairman at the one at UCLA. <clears throat> so when Lee Bach called me in uh, April of 1968 and offered me the deanship over the phone, I thought he had the authority, I guess he did, turned out later, uh, and said he'd like to talk about it. I says, uh, come on out. I had known Lee by reputation. First, when I was a member of the Brookings Board of Trustees in 1964, Bob Calkins, the chairman at the time, said he wanted to subsidize a book on inflation. It wanted to be a first-rate book, and the only person that could do that book was Lee Bach. I mean, he didn't get Lee to do it. He wouldn't have the book written. Now, that impressed me. Uh, secondly, 
One of the big problems of any head of an organization is hiring good people. Where do you find them? At that time at Ford, believe it or not, we had 425,000 employees, more less than half that now. And uh, we found, I kept track, we had 1,100 MBAs working at Ford and 2,200 undergraduates in business. And we found out that the MBAs came in at a 25% higher pay, but progressed at a 35% faster pace. So I had Lee come on out. He's a good persuader. It wasn't too long. I said I'd take the job at Stanford under four conditions. First, we would broaden the curriculum to include so all the students would study something about the social process. And secondly, we would start a separate program, public management program, where we admit about 60 students directly into the public management program, which required the hiring of additional uh, professors. So I got, what, what I got was Harry Rowan, who was the president of Rand Corporation, his fellow Rhodes Scholar, Alan Intovan, even got George Schultz on a part-time uh, basis. The second condition was I wanted tenure. I'd been around academic life long enough to know that tenure gives you prestige and clout. I thought I would need that. And then the lastly, I wanted to hold a job for 15 months for three reasons. First, I wanted to make some organizational and managerial changes at Ford. Secondly, it gave me opportunity to come out to Stanford. I did several times and tried to learn something about the new job. And uh, lastly, uh, options. Uh, I wanted to hang around and pick up some more <laughs> options because I knew I'd be taking uh, over a 90% cut in pay and need a little more financial security. So all those, Lee agreed to all those conditions and his prestige was so great he carried along the search committee, the school, the, uh, the chancellor, board of trustees and I started to work in uh, July 1, 1969. One of the first things I did was set up an advisory committee. It had three assistant profs, three associate profs, three full profs on a rotating basis, and one permanent member, Lee Bach. Uh, secondly, to show Lee's clout, uh, he was elected to the Senate to represent the business school in the Senate all the time. And uh, I was asked to attend in a, as a non-voting member to answer questions, and so was Dick Lyman and the other deans. But these meetings were very long and very boring. So I told Dick Lyman, who was the president, I'm not going to come anymore. If you got any questions with the business school, ask Lee Bach. He'll speak for the school and he'll commit the school just like I could. The, uh, another thing that he helped on was uh, during the uh, riots of uh, April and May of 1970, the Vietnam War was on. And, one day when the U.S. invaded Cambodia, all hell broke loose on campus. And, uh, they even threw rocks through my window and knocked, knocked the picture over of my wife. The students went on strike and, and Lee says, R.J., you ought to write a letter to the alumni and friends of the school to explain what's going on here. And I said, well, Lee, will you help? I said, it's a good idea. All his ideas were good ideas. And uh, he says, well, I got to go to Washington tomorrow, but I'll dictate a few things tonight. So the next day before noon, his secretary brought in a two-page, single-spaced letter, beautifully explaining the whole situation. And at the bottom it put, dictated but not read. <laughs> All I had to do was remove that, 
and uh, send the letter out. I don't think anybody else that I know could, could have done that. I know I've seen Churchill, the last draft he sent to the printers was all marked up, and I understand Lincoln even had three or four drafts of the Gettysburg Address. But Lee dictated but not read. Imagine that. Especially I admire someone because I don't know how to write myself. Last thing I want to say, I'll let Lee helps is on a personal basis. He knew we wanted to live on campus till we could buy some land and build in Woodside. And he found out, as he always the first one to find out things, that the librarian at Stanford was going to Yale and he'd have to sell his house. So he called me up and uh, I said, talk to Francis. And Francis says, well, have Ruth look at it. She had good judgment, as did Lee. So uh, if, said, if Ruth likes it, we'll buy it. That happened in a matter of hours. We had our uh, housing problem solved. Jim, I've made these notes and talked longer than I meant to, Not but at all, I, I really did admire Lee Bach. We'll, keep, uh, we'll circle back to you. I'd like uh, now to uh, have Chuck say a few words. Chuck came uh, to Stanford roughly at the same time as Lee Bach. He chaired, that is Chuck, the Long Range Planning Committee in the uh, late 1960s that called really for sweeping changes. Lee was a member, as I recall, of that committee, and these were the most sweeping changes for the next 40 years. So Chuck, perhaps you could uh, talk about Lee's involvement with you upon the, this major reform of the uh, curriculum and other things in the late 60s. Well, I arrived here on a permanent basis in 1966, and Lee uh, was a member of the long-range planning committee that I chaired. It was set up by Ernie Arbuckle as dean, who felt that the whole school needed a thorough look. Well, we looked all right. We met every week throughout the academic year, starting at 6 o'clock and going until about 9 or 9.30, depending upon how much dispute uh, we encountered. And Lee was, to nobody's surprise, a pivotal force in this. He, uh, he has a style, or had a style, that uh, I always admired. And I observed it in many contexts. For example, I've, I've seen him teach several times. And uh, I think the best way that I can express it is it's a Socratic cross-examination style where he is always trying to get to the heart of the issues. And if we didn't get there, he persisted uh, in uh, getting to that core. And I felt that uh, that cross-examination style just forces people to think much more deeply than they would otherwise. And I think that this was an enormous contribution, not only in a committee, but everywhere, in research, in uh, classrooms, and uh, throughout all faculty discussions. You could always count on him sometimes just lying back in the weeds and coming out and pouncing uh, with a central question that uh, clarified things 
in many people's minds. He had that reputation before he came here, and uh, he certainly lived up to it. I got a, I wrote to Bob Jedicke, uh early last week, and I said we're going to have this session on Lee Bach. Uh, do you have any comments or uh, at additions that might be noteworthy? And uh, he responded, as always, in a thorough way, and basically said a lot of what I just said. But uh, there was one passage in there that I thought the faculty in particular would uh, enjoy. And I brought it with me, so let me just cite it for you. He said, every year, especially when I was associate dean, I probably used up more emotional energy than anyone could ever imagine to get ready for fireside chatting Lee Bach. <laughs> it seemed to, like getting ready to meet with God. <laughs> as great a man as Lee was, he really was never intimidating, and he could somehow always make you feel at ease. I would keep telling myself that somehow it didn't work too well until after the event. <laughs> but that was a reputation that Lee enjoyed or suffered through his stay here, a lot of faculty had so much respect for him that they were afraid of him. And uh, I think that was a mistake. He was not a fearful type of person. He had enormous breadth, and he had uh, a passion for relevance. And one of his characteristics that I think all of us could learn as faculty members is he was a good citizen not only of the school but of the university as a whole. He played an active role in university-wide affairs and he was always approachable to say yes. I have heard comments before and I certainly agree with it that if you want something done. Ask the busiest person to do it. And typically, uh, that's good advice. Because somehow they're more efficient, and they do get things done. And Lee certainly got things done. He uh, also had a lot of energy with respect to improving the teaching of basic economics. He taught basic economics to undergraduates for years, and uh, he sought worldwide uh, improvement in basic economics courses and teaching. So the breadth of his views uh, continue to amaze me as I reflect on it. And then there's one other thing that uh, in my files I found, and this is especially for Lee's children. I have a note that I received from Ruth Bach, and I'll just read a passage of it, but this uh, magazine, which some of you have seen, 
his selections in spring of 1995. It's an extensive discussion of Liebach's career and personality, etc., and I recommend it to all. <laughs> but I sent either a copy or a Xerox copy of this to Ruth, and Ruth responded, thanked me for sending it, and said, I'm going to quote this directly, and by all means, if one of you want, want this, get it after we break up. She says, the children have learned a lot more about him from this, and I have been taken back to happier times than his last few years. Thank you again. So on. Lee had tough times, had tough physical problems all the time he was here. And to think of all that he accomplished professionally in the fa face of serious Parkinson's disease that just wore him down over the years uh, makes him even more an amazing man. Thank you, uh, Chuck, for that. And we'll circle back to the two of you uh, shortly. Um, as indicated, Lee was founding dean of the Carnegie School, uh, and Jim Marsh was on that faculty. I'd like, Jim, for you to talk briefly about his role as founding dean and how it, uh, some of the thoughts there transformed into what went on at Stanford and Lee's influence at Stanford. Okay. I, I, unlike the rest of you, I'm not prepared. So I understand. Uh, I'm not prepared either. So <laughs> <laughs> do not worry. But you know, that's your advantage. You that's, got that now. may be my advantage. Yeah. So I, I'm struck by the fact that this uh, session is rapidly becoming a memorial session, and I, I want to join in that because I, uh, I first knew Lee when I went to Carnegie as a 25-year-old new uh, hire, and I knew him all the time until he died as a fellow inmate of the same old folks home. <laughs> so that's a long time and a lot of different experiences. But going back to GSIA, he created an intellectual atmosphere that I think, well, I certainly have not experienced anywhere else subsequently. It was an extraordinary small group of faculty uh, presided over by a, a, a very powerful trio, Herb Simon, Bill Cooper, and Franco Moliani, and the fourth was Lee Bach. Lee was not part of the, the intellectual fire of that place, but he was the cause of the intellectual fire. He produced a world in which those people uh, could survive. And I think it's not an accident that Lee, Bill Cooper, and Herb Simon were all products of the University of Chicago, of the Hutchins era of the University of Chicago. They, they had that kind of spark. And Franco was a product of Italy, and as we all know from the current president, uh, Italians have a different way of living. <laughs> uh, the, uh, but Lee 
was an extraordinary dean. He was, I always thought of him, I think correctly, as a, a Iowa banker. That was, that was his heritage and that was his style. He dressed like a banker, he talked like a banker, <laughs> and he had all the kind of uh, attributes that we associate with bankers. So, counter to what we all say, not everyone loved him. Uh, there were, in fact, people who hated his guts. Uh, I once uh, told Lee that uh, one of his faculty members was not entirely happy, and he said, it's good for him. <laughs> um, but I, I think that uh, I can tell several stories about Lee that might give a clue as to his character. First story is, uh, back in those days, hiring was not quite the same as it is now. Herb Simon came to New Haven, had dinner with me, and hired me at the end of the dinner. Uh, I'm told later he called Lee and said, I've hired somebody, and I'm sure Lee said, good. That was the kind of dean he was. Uh, very early after I joined the faculty, I was working one evening in my office and I fell asleep. The next thing I knew, the door flew open and there was Lee with a, showing a visitor my office, <laughs> a typical faculty office in which the faculty member was sound asleep. <laughs> They retreated and I said, oh God, what do I do now? Well, before I did anything, the next day Lee called me and apologized. <laughs> he said it was unforgivable of me to have gone into your office without knocking. And by the way, I'm delighted that you're working at night. <laughs> <laughs> that was his style. On another occasion, I was doing some experiments in which the uh, subjects were asked, I was young, were asked to rate the beauty of female photographs, the, the females in these photographs. And these were all head and shoulder shots, and so <laughs> it was all right. Uh, and I thought that in order to keep everything good, I should sort of get photos that were from a modeling company, so I got some. And of course there was a bill, and the bill came to Lee's office, and he's, I got a telephone call. He said, I have a bill for, I don't know what it was, 30 photographs of female models. Do you know anything about this? <laughs> and, I, and I said, yes, they're for an experiment. He said, fine. That was his style. He was consistently a buffer between his faculty and the cruel outside world. Uh, very early in my career, I gave a talk in which I made what was a relatively innocuous comment that said, from the point of view of classical theories of the firm, 
there's no essential difference between wages and dividends, which I think is correct. Um, well, it turned out that one of the persons in the audience was a major alumni supporter of Carnegie and wrote to the president saying, you have a man on your faculty who should be fired. He's obviously a communist. <laughs> the president, who was Jake Warner, sent this down to Lee, and Lee called me in and said, I thought you ought to know that you're uh, attracting attention among the alumni. And I, and, uh, and I said, well, what do we do? And he said, we laugh. That's what will happen to you often in your life, and you might just as well get used to it, and a good administrator protects you from that. And that's what he did. Um, so that's the kind of person he was. Uh, I, as I say, the, he wasn't absolutely loved or, well, loved. He, he was feared. I had one colleague who would come over to our house and get as close to drunk as he could before he went to one of Lee's parties. <laughs> he said, he said, because he said, first, there won't be enough liquor. And second, <laughs> Lee will say something bad. Well... Uh, there, I think Lee could be austere, he could be uh, cold, but he was an enormously talented administrator and friend. Hey, thank you, Jim. Uh, one offshoot of the uh, long-range planning report that Chuck uh, Horn uh, chaired was the establishment of a non-markets course. Uh, so often in business schools, we look at economic solutions and supply and demand curves and rigorous analysis. And uh, this was a course in bringing to bear non-market uh, considerations uh, with respect to making a business decision. The course itself was called Business in the Changing Environment, really the social context of uh, business that RJ touched upon. Lee was really... Uh, the advocate of that course. He uh, formulated it, he developed it, and he taught it. And this was very difficult subject matter to teach. Uh, Lee, using his Socratic method, uh, brought that off, and it was a very popular course. It was a required course, but a very popular course, the way he taught it. And it brought to bear the, the enormous uh, impact that this person had, or at least I thought he had, with respect to bringing some very uh, social and practical considerations to business decisions of a number of different sorts. So I was very impressed uh, with that. Um, also, he had an enormous effect upon the impact of teaching uh, economics, not just at Stanford, but uh, particularly nationwide. He took uh, this on as a task, and he was very interested in development of new ideas with respect to how you could make economics the subject matter more relevant for students in the way professors taught. So that was uh, a very important uh, impact, uh, as well as this impact on management education more broadly defined. So these are some of the things that uh, have, have really evolved. Uh, my impressions, uh, and I sat on the Dean's uh, Advisory Council that RJ set up. I think, Chuck, you 
recommended that the dean get more in touch with faculty and ask that the dean's advisory group be established. That was your idea, not RJ's, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, I listened to more than one good people. I don't know anything about my reputation. Well, I didn't want you to take people, uh, credit for it. When you find people it. smarter than you are, you delegate. Yep. <laughs> but uh, Lee was, uh, as RJ indicated, the permanent member of that committee, and uh, I think we all deferred to him. Uh, you want to give some well, impressions? One of the statements that he made uh, one evening uh, at our meeting, uh, I've remembered, uh, and he, he said it more than, more than once in, in various contexts, but he said, I always try to hire somebody who's smarter than I am. And he cited Herb Simon and Bill Cooper as examples. They're pretty heady examples. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I always kept that in mind when interviewing rookie candidates and so on. And uh, I think it, that advice is one that uh, all hiring people should remember uh, because that improves the quality of the institution. No. Uh, one of the things I recall once telling Lee that one of my colleagues was a bastard and he said yes but he's a smart bastard. Yeah. <laughs> that was his yeah, answer. When, when Lee first talked to me I said Lee you're looking for a fundraiser. Oh no no Archie we got all <laughs> kinds of money. We want you to lead lead the lead the the uh, act the faculty. Well when I got here as I found out hell all Jedicky and plus these two here knew so much more about it I just I delegated almost to the point of abandonment and let them run the school and then I went out with my tin cup and started raising money. They were, I think they had six or seven endowed sheriffs when I came here, and I got 19. And, and the trick is to, as I said quickly earlier, to attract good people. I, I failed to mention, when I was at Ford, the best students, the MBA students, did not come from Harvard or Stanford or Carnegie or Chicago. I, I didn't. I, they came from Carnegie. Lee Bach, the, the, the educational process he installed there was the right one. For, for to be successful managers. Now they were mostly engineers, which I think added to the Ford situation, but he, he, he built up a, 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 a curriculum that was just great for the kind of problem of getting good people in an organization. One of the hallmarks of the R.J. Miller um, deanship was the public management program. I know Lee was uh, involved with that. With you? Oh, yeah, why the, don't you talk about why, that? That's if you really would. one of the reasons I came. I had this in mind that, at my mindset was when Lee arrived is business didn't understand government, government didn't understand business, and not enough was being done about it. Lee had already established this course, business in the changing environment. It was not a core course. We made that after I came here, but Lee gave complete support to this public management idea, and it wasn't always fully supported. I won't mention the name, but you could you couldn't be damn sure that there were a number of the old faculty people didn't want to touch that thing. But but with Lee's support and prestige, we just rolled through that, uh, just ignored it. One, one professor come up and said, R.J., I want to warn you, you're listening to Lee too much. I said, go learn to like it. That's, that's the way it's going to be. Well, I think that was true, uh, not that you listened to Lee too much, but that uh, he had a powerful influence on the school. 
what will be his legacy with respect to management education more broadly defined, do you think? Call on you to, all of you. Or what is his legacy would be the better. Well, I told him once, uh, he, he received some Dow Jones Award or mm -hmm. whatever it was. Uh, it was an, another of his many distinctions. And I said to him, you know, I can't think of one person who had more of an impact on business education in the, cent in the, in the mm -hmm. whole century, the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And uh, I still feel that, n not only because of his uh, emphasis on economics and uh, the contributions he made through his writings in economics, but also because of his enormous influence on a lot of creative people. And uh, I think that's his, uh, uh, one way of expressing his legacy. Mm -hmm. Lee was never one, never one to brag, but he did have pride in one area, and that is the influence that he was having on the teaching of economics and management mm -hmm. education. I've heard him mention it. His textbook went to 11 editions, and, and he said, I think I've influenced millions of people. And he, he got some satisfaction out of that. That was, he was essentially a teacher. You say he was a banker. He, he, in my mind, he, he was a teacher. He really knew how to teach. He had all these other skills. He, he was a pure intellectual, in my mind but an intellectual that also was pragmatic. They, to sell him, you get this combination that, that as smart as he is, he could play, I, I used to go to the academic center and see these academic people. Now, not an, I don't consider myself an academic, by the way, and, and, and neither did all the people around me. I was just a businessman that happened to fall in, in, into <laughs> a situation. But he, the university professors have a name, I call it gotcha. You know, they, they, they want to prove, even if they don't agree, they want to prove their intellectual superiority. They will spar back and forth. And I've seen Lee get in one of these. And he would practice this and practice that and ask over there. And all of us, he'd just pounce. This guy just be completely demolished. And next time around, he was sure he's going to get on Lee's side before he got in one of these arguments. Lee was just great at that. It was very, very satisfying for me to observe. Lee was certainly very rigorous and uh, in intellectual arguments uh, could really skewer uh, opponents that uh, were faulty in their thinking. But another dimension that I remember quite vividly was in the riots of the early 1970s over the Vietnam War, uh, where, as RJ indicated, not only was his window to his office broken, but I think probably 30 to 40% of all the windows in the GSB South, which is the only building we occupied at that time, were broken. Uh, students uh, in the <coughs> MBA program joined other students and really going on strike. Um, and we had various uh, meetings set up. I was director of the MBA program at that, uh, at that point. Meetings uh, set up to try to come to a little better understanding of the student concerns. There were faculty that, uh, and I'll, I won't mention their names, but uh, who essentially wanted to lock the students out, close the place down, bring in the police to effectively uh, protect the school. Uh, Lee listened to these arguments and was much more understanding that this was a social change in society. This was a very important incident. The Vietnam War it has created a lot of unrest in our society. And despite his hard-nosed approach to uh, academic rigor, 
really was sympathetic to the arguments being raised and tried to understand them in ways that uh, I thought were quite remarkable. I remember sitting next to him at a, uh, a meeting of students more broadly defined, but a lot of business school students in Memorial uh, Church, and uh, his uh, emphasis on uh, caution, that uh, we have to understand where their arguments are mm -hmm. and that uh, we need to understand this is mm -hmm. perhaps the most important social issue of the day and uh, we would be remiss if we didn't uh, mm -hmm. at least uh, look at it from the standpoint of the students and the more mm -hmm. uh, broadly based national movement. Jim, I, I knew Dennis Hayes in those mm -hmm. days. It was at one time one of the presidents of the student body and mm -hmm. an activist and continues to be an activist. Mm -hmm. uh, and I recall a conversation with him which, which, in which he was very uh, yeah. unhappy with a lot of the mm -hmm faculty and, and uh, administrators at Stanford saying you cannot trust them. They do not tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. But he said one does. It was mm -hmm. Lee Bach. Mm -hmm. and I reinforce that. One of them told me that Lee's a conservative, but, but he's a good guy. You yeah. can trust him and believe him. And that, that, you know, that was not easy in those days no, to, right. to no. carry that reputation. He, he was just an ama amazing uh, skill uh, that he had with interpersonal relationships. No, 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 no one else lacking. We had in the school in the uh, 1970s uh, sort of various types of objective function, I guess, uh, and it uh, revolved around a term called balanced excellence. And Lee was very much involved in that. Uh, I'd like to get your impressions, as well as yours, Jim, upon that uh, dimension mm -hmm. and how he uh, forward that concept? And well, either one of you. A little louder, Chuck. <laughs> I'm not sure. Oh, I'll take I, I grasp. Well, the, the, the there are lots of ways to, to build a school. You could have a star, you know, build mm. on one or two stars, pay enormous salaries, and then uh, they suck out all the, the money from the school. Lee was balanced excellence. We got to be good in everything across the board. And I recall a, uh, we, we tried that and to show you the kind of success we had, I recall a, uh, we'd have a, a retreat once a year and bring all of the uh, faculty out and go to the woods somewhere and, and, and have them, uh, we called a bitch, called a bitch session because it, it, we encouraged the professors to complain. They were always complaining. You ask them about the, the parking, the heating, the location, and so forth. And, and, and uh, at this particular time, I had invited the president to join for lunch. He always had declined, but this time he said yes. And just before he was about to arrive, this, well, I said, look, we're going to take a time out here because the president's coming over. And, and I want you to get this kind of mindset. First, we were just voted number one school in the country. It was 1975. The next year, we were even most improved school. And of the six fields that we had, in those days, the deans of the business schools all voted. We had AACSB that voted uh, what's the best school. So the deans were the best one, but they thought Stanford had passed Harvard, which was, which was, of course, the best school by far, I think, before uh, uh, recognized with that reputation, at least. I said, we've just been not only voted the best school, but in, in every field, in, in economics, industrial relations, marketing, marketing was the one field that we were not 
number one on. I got Dave Montgomery and told him, this is your problem. <laughs> and the next year he told me we were hiring an assistant prof and there were two good ones coming off the pipeline. What, what difference between academia and business? In, 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 in business, it's hard to find out who the good people are so you can hire them. But in academia, they all know who the good people are because they go to these watering places and the associations and they talk. And usually when they uh, have a good graduate student getting his PhD, they don't want to hire him. They'll put him out on the market. So this year there were two great, absolutely first-rate students coming out. And both Harvard and Stanford were in the market for an assistant prof in marketing. And Dave Montgomery told me, he said, his Harvard told him, Stanford, make up your mind because both of them prefer to come to Stanford, and we don't want to be turned down. So you, you pick the guy, and then you go otherwise. Well, anyway, we, Lee, Lee had this balance. You've got, you got to have good ones uh, across the board. And we were able to achieve that because his knowledge, uh, through his Ford Foundation consulting and all the rest, he, and he ran uh, this Federal Reserve Advisory Board. He would get go to He knew everybody, and he would put up on the board, first, second, third. We always got our... We always got our, our, our uh, top people, and that was just part of the balanced excellence that he, he didn't want to have any one, one part of the school overpower the other. There was another uh, aspect uh, that <clears throat> deserves mentioning, I think, is he was not only uh, unhappy with the status quo all the time, he always looking for improvement. But, uh, for example, another area that was not our strongest suit was strategic planning or business policy or mm -hmm. whatever you want to uh, label it. And he was chairing one committee after the other, uh, recruiting prospects for that particular course. And uh, I remember I was on that co committee with him and uh, it, it was not a very satisfactory uh, outcome again and again until we found, um, I may be wrong, you, you correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that the, the one person who sort of turned it around was Garth Saloner, our mm -hmm. new dean. Mm -hmm. I think that is uh, true. So, and the balance excellence, it was a trade-off between research and teaching, the trade-off between um, uh, non-markets and market-oriented type courses, the trade-off between economics and behavioral, uh, people from an economic base, which finance is, mm -hmm. versus behavioral, those type of trade-offs. And Lee, uh, in his own way, was very important in sort of nudging the school sort of toward the middle, uh, it seems to me, under most of those arguments. It's a uh, equilibrium that's very difficult to uh, maintain, but uh, one that needs to be looked at. And I always was impressed with how he was able to uh, tilt things and, and bring out arguments on all sides to kind of keep us on a, not necessarily an even keel, but at least a, uh, uh, a direction that we knew what we were doing and not allowing one side to sort of capture the other side. Very difficult. Uh, Yale presently in their school has great difficulty in, in maintaining mm -hmm. that balance. I was reading in uh, this magazine that I referred mm -hmm. to earlier uh, some excerpts uh, from Herb Simon, who was commenting on Lee Bach, and he has extensive comments 
on Lee Bach, not only in there, but in, his, in Simon's autobiography. But uh, one of the things that he said about Bach was he never lost sight that a business school should be practical enough so that everything practically that it did should relate to improving business practice or management practice. And he commented that, uh, <laughs> uh, Simon that is, commented that uh, Lee was not a strong in quantitative methods as such, yet he overseed the flourishing of quantitative methods as it relates to business at Carnegie. And I think that uh, is an example of how uh, Lee felt uh, uh, in terms of the breadth uh, of his views as to what education is all about. You know, I think it's absolutely true that he is a, a balanced person, a balanced mm -hmm. worried about things, positive feedback loops in the development of the school. But the overriding thing with Lee, I think, was the faculty. You construct the smartest, the best faculty you could get, mm -hmm. and then everything else will fall in place. Mm -hmm. and he, uh, he worried about that all the time. Mm -hmm. when, when I was being recruited to come to Stanford, I got a call from Lee. He said, I've just seen the guest list for the dinner they held for you to recruit you. And I want, before you make a decision, please come back and I'll give you a dinner with people who are much more interested. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was absolutely right for various political reasons. This particular dinner was not a good recruiting dinner. And he saw it and he acted. Sure, I would have come without that kind of intervention, which no one asked for, and he was just monitoring the the efficiency mm -hmm. of the university. He also, Jim, is from the behavioral area, but Lee was instrumental in uh, sort of sh not shifting, but directing the school a little more toward the behavioral side. There was this trade-off of uh, people primarily from economics background, including finance, accounting, and. I think our behavioral faculty, organizational behavior faculty at, uh, in the uh, sort of the late 1960s was four or five members. And if you ask a person in finance if they thought that was a sufficient number, they'd say, well, it's far too many. So, uh, but Lee uh, did not agree with that and felt that the shift toward behavioral and implementation of decisions uh, was very, very important to, to Lee, not just sort of the best analysis evaluating the alternatives that go into a decision and reaching a decision, but once you reach a decision, implementing it and the implementation had to be through people. So Lee was a champion in his own quiet but uh, fairly resolute way of uh, increasing our presence really in the behavioral area and our organization behavior faculty. Maybe we could take a small pause now to uh, bring Bob Joss in, if we could. Uh, yep, yep. Old has been Joss. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Bob. Okay. 
Bob had an earlier uh, commitment uh, in behalf of the school, and Bob uh, is the eighth dean of the Graduate School of Business. RJ is the fourth, uh, so we have them seated side by side without any intervening deans. But um, you're aware of the agenda today as Lee, and uh, perhaps you could give us your, some impressions. We've all given our impressions, brought out uh, anecdotal uh, evidence on, on certain dimensions, but. Uh, it's a pleasure. Mm -hmm. I, I have some rather unique perspectives on Lee that perhaps none of you have because I was a student in his class and I don't know how many of you ever sat in Lee's class as a student where he was a teacher. Uh, we know him so well for all he did for management education and for this incredible revolution that took place in the 50s and 60s. Um, I was reviewing the history and I didn't realize he came here in 66 so I must have been one of the first MBA students who was fortunate to have him in class. He was far and away uh, the best teacher I had at the GSB, and I had some great ones. You know, I had Van Horn, <laughs> uh, I had <laughs> I had Robichek, I had Solomon, I had some great Did teachers. You have Horngren? No, I didn't have Horngren, oh, so uh, I I can't compare Chuck. <laughs> But Lee was fantastic. I mean, I had him for this MBA class that uh, is probably the closest thing today to the CAT seminar, in a way. It was business and government and the changing society. Uh, he just pushed us, and I was in it. This was an MBA class I was in, even though I was a PhD student. He pushed us to, to take a view on a difficult uh, social, economic, business issue and to write a very crisp, uh, well-crafted, short paper, no more than three pages. The punchline was usually, what's the role of the businessman in this issue? Uh, and he was really tough-minded in his critique, lots of, you know, cross-outs, red markings, questions in the margin. I think I not only learned how to think from Lee, how to write from Lee, uh, it, it was a tremendous experience as a student. So. That's a kind of unique vantage point being one of the very first MBA students here, now being the dean years later, and knowing, of course, his tremendous impact on uh, the evolution of management education and what it did here at Stanford. But, but to be a student in his class was phenomenal. I, I also, amazingly enough, as an undergraduate at the University of Washington, uh, you know, I didn't even know what economics was. I took my very first course in economics, which just excited me and opened my eyes to the field. And the textbook, of course, was, was Lee's textbook. And I, I always re remember that as well. The faculty member brought it alive, but uh, he also had this great lucid quality of making economics interesting. Uh, I'm, yes. No, of course. Please. I was in the class of 1968, mm -hmm. and I had the good fortune of taking Lee's class. And the one thing I will always vividly remember is after our first written assignment was submitted, mm -hmm. he came into the class and just shocked us all by saying, you all are terrible writers. <laughs> and I was really shocked. I was shocked to the extent that I went out and went constructively to improve my writing skills and in the process I find out I like to write mm -hmm. and it ended up affecting I continually now publish which also gets me invited to interesting places to do workshops and things like that and I trace it all back to that mm -hmm. shocking revelation that I had never heard that before that, mm -hmm. that I was not a prolific <laughs> writer and I, and I attribute that to Lee later. 
You're sparking another point that uh, he made the same point in our class. I'm shocked at the quality of writing here. He said that he said I and I didn't realize now this was his first year. He said, "Well, I'd come to the Stanford Business School. I expected better. I expected more." And he and he had these high expectations, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, which were great. I mean, that's what you that's what you want in a classroom. And he he just hit people right mm -hmm. between the eyes. Look, this is the Stanford Business School. I expect a certain level of performance of uh, mm -hmm. to express yourself, of rigor, of supporting your uh, points with good, solid, well-constructed arguments, and here's what they look like. And he'd, uh, your paper would just be a mess, you know, when you thought you'd really mm -hmm. worked hard and done a good job, but boy, did we learn how to write. Jim, you're the uh, moderator, but I'm 93 years old, and I can exercise my seniority. Absolutely. And I want to say I thought it was very nice we got a mm -hmm. response from the audience. I hope someone from the Bach family will speak up about your dad. I think we're, I, 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 I can keep on talking, but I've already talked too much. But if any of you would be inclined mm -hmm. to, or anybody around here, just yeah. uh, hang a good loose idea, on RJ. this thing. I, I, I think that was a very nice comment. Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, I don't know if there are other microphones. No. I particularly would, would like to hear uh, the family's assessment of uh, Ruth Bach, their mother, because I always felt that she was a very strong support mm -hmm. for Lee, and uh, I, I just wondered about it since I never did know the children. To, to give you a minute to collect your thoughts, I will then I'll say a few words. Uh, my wife did all the tra same training I had. She taught at UCLA while I first got drafted. And so w we, we saw quite a bit of the box. They were supportive in, in, in a social sense. And she had a very high regard for Ruth. And I said, Franz, what, what should I say today? She said, well, first of all, bring Ruth into the picture somewhere. That's why I mentioned that and, and uh, good judgment. And then I said, well, what should I say about Lee? She said, well, say he was thoughtful. They would have exchanges. She would and talk about economics, and then Lee would say something, and, and then she'd remember that. And then if I said something else, well, Lee says this. That's <laughs> how dumb can you be? Because Lee said the other. <laughs> well, anyway, now, now come on back. And this whoever wants to be the spokesman for the family, you got to say something here about your about your father and grandfather. Yeah, my my father to me was very intellectual and very fair, very intellectual. I learned to write also from him. I remember the scribbling on But he was very helpful, and um, his love was economic education. You know, I think you get the nail on the I mean, the head on the nail, whatever. Um, and I remember sort of being a guinea pig for some of his uh, new ideas and education, especially even going down to the high school level, trying to create a program where students could learn to remember economics mm -hmm. um, and lots of studies. And that article, you know, my mother was right. That article in that magazine there, I learned so much about what my father did because he didn't talk about it at home very much. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. he'd go in his study, he knew about his textbook and his, his writings. Mm -hmm. um, and it didn't bother him when he was in that study. And, but his personal life was his personal life, and his business life was sort of out there. And mm -hmm. it's sort of the same way with my mother. You know, she was she was a very private person, very shy, mm -hmm. family, but very mm -hmm. supportive. 
mm -hmm. and she would help him with his books and stuff. But she was not a public person particularly. So, um, thank you. Thank you. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, I just I'm just so delighted to hear all about my dad here, and um, so many of the things you say resonate with my memories of that I with all of you. And uh, Dad did share some, maybe a little bit more with me about what he was doing. Uh, I think the same as Susie, uh, that we all read his textbooks. We were used as kids <laughs> textbooks. And he'd give us a chapter to read and then quiz us about what we learned. And then use that to make me some corrections to do whatever he needed to do in his book. Uh, as far as the writing, uh, that certainly resonates well, too. I remember having to present my... My, my papers to him in high school, and he said, well, Tim, this isn't so good, and he this. What do you really mean? He always did it with questions, uh, which I thought was a really uh, great strength of his. I went to Stanford undergrad here, and I had friends who took his classes, the intro to economics classes. And they all come back and say, oh, your dad's just so great. It's the questions. He makes us think about what we're doing mm -hmm. and what we're thinking. He makes us clear thinkers. I think another thing that strikes me is he talked about um, when he was a young man in, in Iowa, like to Grinnell, and he shared his thoughts about how he was affected by the, um, the Depression years and how he used that as an impetus. He said, that's what got me interested in this field of economics and uh, educating people, educating everybody about how economic systems work and that led to his first textbooks, I know. Um, you mentioned the inflation book. I remember him sitting and writing the inflation book and, and, and saying, Tim, now this is what inflation is, and this is what, what this is all about, and try to engender my interest in the field, too, I know. Um, I went in a different direction in my field, um, but I know he also had an impact on my older brother, who got his PhD in economics and is working high up in the treasury. So, so wonderful for me here, for my family too, is all these wonderful remembrances. Mm -hmm. uh, and it brings back. Uh, you didn't have to be an economist. He was proud of your musical. Uh, he was indeed. <laughs> Does, uh, did he ever speculate as to what he would have done had he not gone into academe? He turned down law, didn't he? Start the law school for a while, turned his back well, on that. Law. The famous yeah. story was he tried law school for one semester in Texas. Yeah. And he didn't like law. He didn't like Texas. I always <laughs> thought of him as a, as a tough, a tough yeah. I lawyer who I would not want to cross-examine me in a in a courtroom. Yeah. yeah. I, this reminds. I was on you know the Harvard Visiting Committee. I knew what they were doing. And during the interim year, when I was waiting to come, they asked me to speak to the AACSP. That was the association of all the deans. And I know in my speech, I made the comment, it's okay to look back. I said, the case method is basically looking backward. I said, it's okay to look backward, but you shouldn't look backward over half of the time. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the Harvard professors came up and tried to turn me around. I said, no, I'm not changing yeah, yeah, yeah. We're <laughs> going to look forward. We're not going to look back. Uh, so I don't know why he didn't like the, didn't like the law. We were, he was a forward-looking guy. Yeah, well, well <laughs> He looked in all directions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also want to share a bit about my mother, too. Uh, through all his illness, um, she really was a strength behind him. 
very private um, that really held us uh, as a family together and especially supporting him through all of this. I, uh, my wife, uh, Mimi, was um, involved in music and was very close to Ruth, and that uh, was clear towards the end that uh, Ruth's role in this, uh, she was I would say very uh, something just uh, mm -hmm. uh, by happenstance that I knew about your father and mother. I didn't really know her, but uh, I, of course, went on to work at Wells Fargo Bank, and ultimately uh, Lee called me rather late in his life to make sure that the trust we were we were involved in his own personal estate and trust and that things he was very concerned that things would be right for Ruth and right for your mother and you know it made quite an impression on me just just how much he cared and how interested he was and it meant a lot to me as a former student to just be able to help him with that I remember um, when Bob mentioned the papers that Lee required and how uh, attached he was to rigor and analysis. Uh, in the early 70s, I was director of the MBA program, and uh, unlike today where we have eight or 10 people involved in student affairs, I was the sole person involved in student <laughs> affairs and adjudicated any problems. One student came in with a paper that uh, he got a B minus grade from Lee on this paper. It had writing all over it. It was all in red. The student never had a B in his life before, either at undergraduate or in Stanford Business School, and was a rate uh, by this. And I looked over the paper and I said, so what? He said, well, this is an insult. He said, I've just never had this. And at the bottom of the paper was the statement by Lee, this paper is too good not to be better. That was the closing, B minus. And I said, this is the greatest accolade you could have. I said, you ought to be proud of this. You ought to frame this. I thought that was Lee at his best. Yeah, that's very good. Okay, further reflections on uh, Lee? Any concluding remarks we want to make? You've said a lot. Yes. Yes, indeed. Can you come a little closer up so we can all hear. Yeah, you might just stand so the cameras can pick you up your, uh, yeah. Question. Um, what do you think he would say right now about the state of management education? If he saw it uh, in the spirit which you've spoken about him this morning, what do you think he would say about the current teaching and curriculum? My impression would be that he'd be very pleased. And the key behind it is change that uh, Lee was never for a static organization or a static uh, business goal. I think the change would be important. The fact that balanced excellence to a degree has carried forward would be pleasing to him. The emphasis on societal concerns, I think, would be uh, heartening to him. Those are my off-the-cuff remarks. Please. Well, I, I think they're right on target. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I thought Lee was, of all the individuals who have contributed to business education in that century, uh, Lee stood at the top. And uh, to, to give him that acclaim, I think, is not only justified, uh, but uh, it says everything about his uh, strong suits. In a way, that was almost his long suit, recognizing that external conditions changed and business had to adjust to these external conditions. 
And uh, while we're at, this is a memorial to Lee, but I didn't get to attend uh, Bob's uh, retirement kind of a party and uh, wrote him a nice letter, I think. But I want to say in, 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 in front of, I think you've done a hell of a good job as being dean of the business school. I think you be remembered in, it's not an easy job running, well, I know what you're talking about, keeping the balance in here, but you're leaving a legacy of the new curriculum and the new campus, and I said in my letter to you, I think that over the next few years, Stanford will, will come to be recognized as the best business school in the world, and when I heard that Garth got the job, I mailed him a letter this morning, I think he was absolutely the right choice. You're, you're in a transitional mode now with this changes in the curriculum, and you got to see it through. You're, there are going to be adjustments every, every time. You never get it right the first time. You've got to keep fine-tuning this thing. But, but what, the track you're on is the right track, and you set the track, and you can take a lot of credit. And I'm glad I could say this in front of, in front of well, these people because, uh, because I well, did. Well, thank you very much, R.J. And, of course, when you have a job like this, you, you try to think, well, how would others that you respect have done it? And I'll have to say that a lot of that goes to... Obviously, people like Ernie and yourself and Lee and Jim Howell and Jim Van Horn and Bob Jedicke and Chuck Horngren, it's just a, it's in the, in the DNA here. You want it to be that kind of place. Um, I think Lee would be very pleased today with the role of the business school in the university and the respect that it enjoys at a great university because I think that was always something mm -hmm. Uh, that he felt from the 50s was uh, missing, that business schools belonged really in a major uh, respected prominent role in a leading university. But I think he'd be challenging us. He'd be troubled by some of the things going on in society, the lack of business leadership in some situations. Uh, uh, I think he'd be taking that course on business government and the changing society and really pushing our students even harder about what's the role of business leadership in the world today, uh, the social concerns, and if business doesn't get involved in the way they ought to, uh, who else? And that would be his big push. That's what he would expect of Stanford MBA students, and he's right. I agree. I, uh, <clears throat> he asked me, he came out of the blue one day and said, when I was teaching, I said, what are you going to do on Earth Day? And I said, what do you mean? I teach finance. What about Earth Day? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and Lee then laid out what he was going to do in his course on economics, business to change environment, with uh, saying, I'm going to use this to sort of capture the ideas of these trade-offs and how society should judge these trade-offs. It was remarkable. I just couldn't uh, believe it. And it made me think, mm -hmm. well, what can I do? And I actually then, in the course I taught, referred to Earth Day. The students were quite surprised. Uh, but. Nonetheless, uh, it, it was uh, a remarkable stimulus. So he'd be current today, I think, uh, yeah, no, I, as he was then. I, I think he had this remarkable ability to care about business as a well-run organization mm -hmm. and all that we do as a school to really help our students in the micro level to, you know, what do you do to make sure an organization runs really well? But he was so good at looking to the external and bringing the external into the firm. And if you're responsible for a firm, you're operating in society and you're operating in a larger economy and you've got to take that responsibility as well as just inwardly looking at the firm. He, he was uh, very curious about what you were doing in research, which I, I found, uh, I, I forget whether it was Jim March 
or Bill Cooper who told me that uh, he, that Lee would come around on Saturday mornings and go from oh, office to office. Pardon? GSIA, everyone was there on Saturday morning. <laughs> also Sunday morning. Okay. But, and he'd rap on your door and ask you what you're doing. And uh, yeah. that, that creates fear. <laughs> <laughs> or inspiration, Chuck. Uh, yeah. you, you wonder how Lee found time to do all of these yeah, things. Yeah. You think all the time he was outside pushing yeah. other people. Hell, he was the best listener I ever knew. Mm -hmm. He had listened to you. How did he have time to do all the listening and yet doing all the, the forcing? Mm -hmm. it, 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 he must have led. Uh, he must have had uh, two lives somehow. Uh, get all this done. No sleep, maybe. <laughs> he listened in nice ways. He wasn't judgmental. He just had yeah. questions that mostly seemed to be curiosity, but he was always pushing toward more rigor. I expect his legacy will be one in management education of bringing. Uh, business schools into increased rigor. Uh, I expect that's mm -hmm. the thing I remember most about it. All right, any further reflections? Paul, I think I should turn it back to you. We thank all of you for coming, and particularly the family. Gosh, it's such a, it's been wonderful for us. We're privileged to have known him and uh, proud of his legacy uh, very much in the business school. Thanks for leading, Jim. Here, here. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.